Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to another episode of Cold War Brew Podcast. Um, I will be on for strictly 45 minutes, maybe a little longer, but I have to be off. I have an appointment, 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. How's everyone doing this evening? Hope you are doing well. So, yeah, this episode is strictly for all of you. So if you want to come and call in, have any questions, any comments, please do so as soon as possible because I do have to get out of here about 8.15 Eastern Time. With that said, though, I wanted to go over a few developments. One, of course, you all know, or if you have checked the news, or uh, I'm sure most of you have, you've seen that Russia has conducted about uh, 100, they're saying anywhere between 100 and 300 strikes on Ukraine, including in Kiev, targeting decision-making centers, they're saying, including the headquarters of the SBU, Ukraine's intelligence services. So this is a massive um, step by Russia. And, And Vladimir Putin himself said that he and Russia were sending a message. And so these are the biggest strikes since the special military operation began. And a lot of people are saying this might be because of First of all, there have just been an unprecedented amount of developments that have happened over the last few weeks to a month alone. But even <clears throat> just a, a couple of days ago, we had the uh, bridge in Crimea attacked with Ukrainian forces taking credit and, and NATO as well, uh, giving credit to Ukraine, bragging about the attack on civilian infrastructure, the Crimea Bridge, which connects Crimea to Russia. And uh, even though the bridge wasn't destroyed, as many had initially believed, and the damage was a lot less than what the Western media would play out or would say, nonetheless, it was a significant attack, and Russia took it very seriously. However, there's also an understanding that this was probably in the works for quite some time, that the writing has been on the wall. The escalations are not stopping. Uh, we've seen from whether it's a Nord Stream terrorist attacks on, on those pipelines, uh, whether it's the fact that Ukraine, despite all of its disadvantages, despite the fact that Ukraine uh, is running out of ammunition, is running out of NATO weaponry, it is still trying to launch offensives. There's reports that maybe in Zaporozhia, now a part of the Russian Federation, Ukraine may be attempting an offensive there. We know that Kharkov and Kherson, uh, there's just been attempts at offenses uh, left and right, but no significant victories, no significant progress in doing what the U.S., NATO, the EU keeps saying, and Ukraine keeps saying is the goal, which is to essentially keep Russia out, essentially kick Russia out and then keep it out. That's not happening. And it seems to me that one of the reasons that's not happening is because we have these referendums and a lot of people voted in favor of joining the Russia Federation. And so You know, there's just been a a whole number of developments. Those are just a few. Tomorrow I'm going to go live and possibly Wednesday with Wyatt Reed on on the left lens. Uh, You know, Wyatt was just subject to an attack. He's on the Maratovitz, Maratovitz assassination list. He, you know, he's a friend of of all of my work and uh, someone that really does, uh, I mean, he really works hard. He is now in Donetsk. 
And so last, <clears throat> I believe it was last night or the night, was it the, it was uh, the night before last on the 8th, he was very close to being sub-targeted by uh, or being killed by Ukraine's uh, uh, shelling. So they shelled, they bombed uh, a Donetsk hotel that he was staying at. He was very close to it. Uh, he was walking back to his hotel. He said he was about 100, I believe he said 100 meters away. And that if he was 30 seconds to a minute faster in his pace, he would have been killed. So I, I plan on having him on on Wednesday to talk about what's going on on the ground, what his observations are. And uh, this comes to after I just shared, and I'm going to get to you, Big Teal, in a second. I just shared on Twitter that Twitter is censoring, uh, uh, is still on this censorship uh, tip. I posted about Ukraine's uh, a Nazi problem, talked about how the Western media has changed their tune entirely. That if you notice from before February, the Western media, Western mainstream media, wasn't afraid of talking about Ukrainian nationalists, Ukrainian neo-Nazis, Ukrainian Nazis. Now, <clears throat> there's just outright censorship of it ever since February. It's like you, they, they have to black it out. So I share a meme about that, right, with all the articles, literally dozens of articles that have been written in the mainstream press since 2014 on this issue. And Twitter labels it sensitive material. And so you have to have your privacy settings, hopefully most people do, you have to have your privacy settings uh, 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 configured in a certain way to even see it because it has sensitive content. And now there's a warning. It says we put a warning on this tweet because it might have sensitive content. So that's what's going on. I mean, it's just they're losing control of the narrative. You had OPEC as well, the OPC. You had Saudi Arabia as uh, the head, uh, really the you could call it the head of OPEC, uh, snub the United States, tell Biden that uh, they are not going to glut the market. They're not going to dump their oil in the market to lower prices as they commit economic warfare against Russia. OPEC is not going to do that. OPEC is going to continue to cut production, which will keep prices very high and help Russia and Saudi Arabia and other countries like that reap massive profits. So some of it, of course, is not so selfless, right? We're not talking about global solidarity here on the part of Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia is saying to the United States very clearly that they are not in favor of this war on Russia because it hurts them. It is not in their best interest when you have these kind of monopolies over energy it is not in their best interest to take part in an attack on a stable force in this uh, energy market, which can help, especially when prices are so high right now, can help uh, keep revenues flowing in. Saudi Arabia says it's not going to be part of that. It's not going to be controlled in that way. And the Biden administration has had to bow down and has, has been subject to much criticism over this by liberals, neoliberals, neocons, and the like. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that this is a big move by OPEC. And then <clears throat> you also have the fact that winter is coming. This is all part of it. Winter is coming. Europe is in crisis today. Jamie Dimon 
over at uh, the over you know one of the big uh, uh, fat cats in Wall Street has said that he believes that the United States economy will be in a recession in six or so months, and that is probably going to be worse for Europe. It's probably going to come quicker for Europe as Europe faces the brunt of the energy crisis in the immediate. And then it's going to trickle down or trickle up, depending on what direction you want to look at. It's going to trickle to the United States. So we're in for massive job losses because, in, in large part because of the U.S.'s new Cold War on Russia. And uh, 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 Europe is on the verge of economic and then political collapse because Europe, one by one, we're already seeing it. Uh, these governments and the EU stability is very much un- under question right now, very much in question. So Russia is going to benefit from this, one, because Russia has the advantages. Russia has the capacity to escalate militarily whenever it sees fit. You saw what happened in Kiev. You saw what happened today. It, that could be It could be a lot worse for Ukraine at any given moment. You have Europe on the verge of collapse. You have the United States' political and economic system not also not in good shape. And you have much of the world looking toward Russia and also China as the foremost uh, reliable partners, right? And when I say much of the world, I don't mean Europe. I don't mean the West, the collective West, whatever you want to call it. I, I, I'm talking about Africa, Asia, all all regions of Asia, East, Central, <clears throat> South, West, um, Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean. All, all of the countries and peoples in these regions look at uh, Russia and China as stable forces and reliable partners. So, you know, in the coming week, at the end of this week, at the end of the, this week, we are going to see also China launch its um, 20th National Congress of the uh, Communist Party of China. It's going to be, uh, one, a celebration of the achievements, whether it's uh, increasing life expectancy, eradicating extreme poverty, becoming a global leader in renewable energy, and green development, whether it is uh, talking about the problems and the issues to come, how to navigate the climate crisis, how to navigate this global crisis spurred on by the Ukraine situation and the proxy war that NATO is waging. Um, all of these issues are going to come up. The, the the need for consistent multilateralism, the need for reliable partnerships, reliable cooperation, emphasis on peace and development and justice, and all of these things are going to be talked about. And then there will be a plan to enact it. And so this is going to be very interesting because... Uh, there's going to be a lot of documents coming out, a lot of statements, and it's going to be a, a complete contrast to what is happening in the United States and its Western allies, uh, all of which are in complete disarray, political polarization, and economic crisis. And that contrast is also going to send a strong message again to the rest of the world, and hopefully it'll send a strong mes- message to people in the United States and the so-called collective West that it's time to uh, reconsider our view of China, our understanding of China, and how we should relate to China as we uh, continue to follow developments and respond accordingly to the massive escalations in this proxy war 
between Russia and NATO, and, and which is being led uh, principally by NATO. So with that said, though, I have Iggy in the queue, and I want to get to people in the queue. I saw some people come in and then come out, but please do come back in if you would like. Okay, I see Bide now. So Iggy and then Bide, so I'm going to get to you first. Iggy, uh, you are the now able to speak. Hey, Danny. Um, one of the things about um, the present situation and how it's with Ukraine and how it's affecting, obviously, uh, Europe, UK, US, is that it is purely political. There is no energy supply problem, right? Everything is political. So essentially, depending upon how the war works out, and assuming that we don't, we don't actually go to um, you know, DEFCON 1 and a nuclear launch, and basically, everything is reversible. You know, people can just go back to agreeing to buy some cheap Russian gas and buy cheap Russian oil or whatever price that is until the price comes down. Right? Russia has never said it wants to stop selling anyone any of its junk. Right. And we're still actually technically buying Russian oil. It's just being rebranded as Turkish or Indian or whatever. And um, according to Ritter, who does energy, uh, he says that. The Gulf Coast refineries that are rigged for Russian crude or Venezuelan are still being used. And there's no way that they can be being pumped with uh, Venezuelan oil, right? So they must be taking Russian oil. They can't take any, any other grade unless they're recalibrated, right? If that's true, that, me that tells you how much of an absolute fucking mockery the actual real state of affairs is. Because it means that the narrative of what is going on on a political power play is not real, right? And the, essentially, Europe is driving itself into destruction because it's choosing to, to maintain an allegiance to the US and the UK is doing the same, right? Which is actually detrimental. Now, I mean, what is that? That is essentially being stuck in an abusive relationship with essentially a narcissist sociopath, right? To some extent. And it's a question of whether people in these nations wake up to that fact and can act in their own true citizen self-interests through any kind of democratic or perhaps undemocratic process, or whether they all just continue to roll over and take it. Um, you know, only, only time will tell. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, thanks for the comment. I think it is very... Um you know, very astute comment. I, I, I mean, for me, it feel that that's exactly what it feels like. I mean, a lot of this does feel like a sham. However, as you said, it is very real for Europe. It is very real for Europe because they are taking steps. They have reduced the energy supply. And of course, with Nord Stream being destroyed, that's also going to have medium to long-term impacts uh, which are not yet felt, but will very much be felt uh, soon enough. But nonetheless, as you said, it, Russia doesn't have an interest in stopping uh, reneging on its contracts. Russia's benefiting quite a lot from these energy price hikes, ironically. It's the blowback, it's the contradiction in this policy. The hope was to strangle Russia's economy. Well, uh, Russia has uh, decided that 
uh, it can uh, restructure its economy so that it can benefit from these price hikes. It doesn't have to collapse. It is not beholden to U.S. and Western capital. It doesn't have to uh, destroy itself just because uh, uh, certain sections of Western capital want to shoot uh, themselves in the foot and all the governments that they control. So, uh, yeah, time will tell. Uh, We're getting to that season we're coming to the winter season we already know prices are incredibly high we know people are suffering quite a lot we know a lot of this is political and it's coming out in very real terms economically Uh, but uh, one thing that's interesting to note is they could theoretically and theoretically say okay we're just going to reverse this policy but in terms of what that would look like i think part of this is one the politics of it are the politics of imperialism so to reverse course, admit loss, admit mistakes, admit errors, and to do so in a way that would benefit Russia, because it would benefit Russia to not be this most sanctioned country in the world, it would honestly benefit the whole region. But to do that would possibly send a strong message to the military industrial complex as well, which would not like such a, a, a medium term uh, a vision in, or, or medium term policy in that way. And then, of course, uh, you you talked about the people. Yeah, I mean, people in Europe are going to be protesting. It's going to be, uh, I think it's going to be quite chaotic because the politics are not so solid. Uh, the left in Europe has been very weak. Uh, it's it's very similar to the United States where there isn't a real strong organized faction, clear faction, and one that isn't tied to capital itself or completely conciliatory to it. So we're going to see, I think, in Europe, uh, I think, a further turn to the so-called right, which uh, honestly has been ruling for a while. But I think we're going to see this pattern from Italy and other countries in in Europe uh, continue to go that direction, which, you know, it's hard to say whether that has any benefit, right? There's rhetoric, anti-EU rhetoric, anti-NATO rhetoric. But generally, any section of the right, whether it's neoliberal or or more expressly so-called far right, usually they still capitulate to capital or capitulate to imperialism. So it's hard to say whether that will have any benefit. Nonetheless, they do stand to benefit from what's about to happen and what is happening right now. Um, but uh, I want to get to Bide. You are the next caller. And you're up now. Uh, hey, Danny. Thanks for taking my call. Yep. Um, I wish I had something that was more substantive to say. But really, I'm just... I'm having trouble figuring out what the hell is going on in Ukraine and why. Um, I, I'll admit I haven't been following everything in Ukraine as much as it seems like I should have been. Um, but this latest bombing of the Crimean bridge or the Crimean bridge, and then the response by Putin and then, uh, trying to understand why the U S generally and the UK and a lot of different, uh, sort of Western powers that are under the UK or under the, uh, that are in league with the, uh, the U S what their end goal is for even continuing this war. Um, I was reading that there were potentially 
peace deals or peace talks back in April of 2022 between Russia and Ukraine and that Boris Johnson uh, at the behest of the US nixed those, shut those down. Uh, this, this pipeline that was blown up is, I've been trying to read about it and they're saying that it's kind of pressuring Germany to stay in the war or to stay uh, aligned with the US and uh, the Ukraine and, and their war efforts. And I don't understand why. Uh, I, would you be able to, for someone, I, I, I feel like, what's his name from the, uh, uh, that meme where the guy's like, I don't know what's going on at this point. I'm too afraid to ask uh, from, I don't know. It's like community or something like the community or um, parks and rec. Could you just take a, a broad overview of, you know, what what the U.S.'s endgame seems to be, why there was a rejection of a peace deal, if that was the case, and where you see things going from here? Uh, that's a lot, but sure, yeah, yeah. No, I can I can do that though. I can I can kind of give summary about i mean the u.s is end game broadly and and it is this simple in my opinion it, it, it of course it has underlying features to it but i think simply the end goal with ukraine is to get closer to the larger geopolitical vision the larger uh, uh, imperial vision and goal which is to contain quote-unquote uh, Russia, which is a, a euphemism for for regime change. So, the end goal is to destabilize Russia. Um, everything that the United States has done, well before uh, the uh, Ukraine, you know, special military operation launched, everything that's been going on since uh, arguably 2012, when uh, NATO's military encirclement really ramped up. And you had uh, many more former Soviet republics, especially the uh, Latvia, Estonia, and um, Lithuania, join uh, NATO. And uh, you had then you had you know operations in Norway, and now you have Sweden and Finland in NATO. So so everything the United States has done through NATO has been about regime change against Russia, and everything that's going on in Ukraine is that's really the end goal for the United States. Europe, and I think uh, it also is kind of this simple, and it's starting to play out this way. It looked much more complicated, I think, early on, uh, you know, when the media had this blitz to say, oh, look at Russia invading Ukraine. Russia is, you know, the big bad aggressor. It was kind of a gotcha moment. Look, we've been saying it all this time, and finally Russia has uh, affirmed our propaganda. But even as things gone on, have gone on, it's so clear that Europe doesn't really have an end goal here. That Europe, uh, Europe's interest in staying in this war is purely this proxy war and this uh, aggressive new Cold War against Russia is purely about Europe's status as a servant of the United States as a, a completely beholden to its political establishment. And you're exactly right about April 2022. Uh, that was reported, unfortunately, later, right? We didn't get that breaking news as we would hope to have had with something like that. 
But it had, but that's exactly what happened. That Boris Johnson, the UK, on behalf of the United States, did pressure. He did tell uh, Ukrainian officials that uh, they weren't ready. They weren't ready for this to end. And uh, 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 a lot of that is because this is a permanent war. This is the the end goal is not satisfied until Ukraine is part of NATO or some kind of complete and utter um, base station for NATO to continue to encroach on Russia. I mean, that's why they keep uh, waging war on the Donbass. Well before the, you know, it's not just about ethnic cleansing. Any kind of racism, any kind of ethnic cleansing always understand it as part and parcel of a war. The reason why Ukraine's government since the coup has been so keen on waging war in the East is because the East is the gateway to Russia. That's why Crimea, that's why Russia did the referendum of Crimea. It was like, oh, no, 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 we got to protect our military assets there. We also have to uh, make sure that Ukraine does not have access to that as it wages this war, you know, does not have access to that region as it wages this war, which, as Scott Ritter and others have called it, it's ethnic cleansing. It is a genocide, and it is based upon a particular group's culture. It's based on the Russian-speaking people there. It's all about eliminating everything that is Russian. So... Uh, broadly, we should look at this conflict, and 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 this is very hard, I think, in terms of how people's minds have been shaped, their ideologies have been shaped about what's going on in Ukraine. But really, we shouldn't look at this as just okay. Russia launched an, an invasion or a special military operation in Ukraine. Uh, we should look at this as really a broader regime change war on Russia that pulled Russia in to this kind of response and now we're seeing the consequences not just for ukraine because of what russia's activity but also for the people of the donbass who have suffered mightily and are now finally getting help and are now a lot of uh, i think 20 25 of ukraine is now going to be part of russia and uh, for many that's a beneficial thing for them they see that as a uh, uh, much preferable to a regime that was, you know, uh, bombing them almost uh, on the daily um, for seven plus years. And then uh, you have also uh, NATO's objectives here. Now, keep pumping Ukraine with money, servicing the military industrial complex, and uh, uh, creating a permanent war state, a permanent warfare state that is primarily designed to not just satisfy all these profit-seeking interests, but in the end to ultimately get the job done against Russia. I think the overall strategy is a failed one. I don't think it's going to work. I think there definitely was a possibility before the Nord Stream pipelines were destroyed that Germany may have, uh, although politically it seems a little far out, given how subservient um, Olaf has been, Mr. Schultz. But um, nonetheless, Putin did in Smartland uh, during the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting, he did signal to uh, Germany and to Europe 
that he's ready at whatever time, as Iggy said earlier, at any time. He is ready to continue. Russia is ready to continue servicing Europe. So uh, it, it, just after that, you know, we're, we're talking about not uh, not a not a week after. I think it was a few days, actually, that was Nord Stream uh, destroyed. So I think that one, this is primarily and principally as hard as it may seem, given Sophie were talking about it like this. This is a U.S.-driven regime change war. It just doesn't look as, I guess, um, cut and dry as in other instances when U.S. regime change wars have been primarily successful based on or just uh, 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 so demonstrably out in the open, given that the countries being targeted just did not have any capacity to defend themselves. I think the big difference in this situation is that Russia has the capacity to defend itself, and that is creating both a lot of problems for the United States and NATO, but also it's causing a lot of problems for people in these countries who have been so hardened with anti-Russia propaganda. It's hard for a lot of Americans, a lot of Europeans across the political spectrum to understand Russia as anything but an adversary. And that, and, and you know, that's been the point of this now decade-long new Cold War in, in a lot of respects, is to get to a situation where uh, there there would be no accountability for such a disastrous... I, I don't think that the U.S. and NATO could have predicted how badly this would go for it. But I think that the hope would be if there were any consequences, uh, because those are always possible, um, the the population, you know, the general population, ordinary people, would not stand up. And, and we're seeing that people are doing so. I saw Iggy post in the chat after they um, after after they spoke here, but um, that there are protests forming. Uh, that's definitely true. I've seen them. I've covered them some on my YouTube channel, but um, the political character of them will be up for grabs because everything is so is so fresh. We haven't had any anti-war movement in the West for a long time. We haven't had. Uh, an anti-war movement in the United States for a long time, and uh, 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 so it's going. We're going to be working our way up. So that said, though, thank you so much for those comments. Um, so I don't see anyone else uh, in the queue right now, uh, but I can um, go to Fahim. Actually, there is Fahim. Hold on one second. Okay, Fahim, you are the next caller. Hey, Danny, how are you? I am okay. How are you doing? Good, good. So uh, a slight, uh, well, sort of kind of like a pushback, but not a total pushback. But uh, the part that I disagree uh, with you, uh, Danny, is I think, and then I would really love to hear your opinion uh, on this. So I think it's more about uh, China than with uh, Russia. Because mm. if Europe is trading with Russia, uh, which makes them and they should be a natural partner because it's a land they uh, their uh, cultures and traditions and mm -hmm. uh, relationships go back uh, way before the US was US 
And um, if they're trading with Russia and China via land, and the world is uh, trading with China more because of, excuse my language, it's not being a dick vis-a-vis -vis the IMF and the World Bank, etc. And the US not having a manufacturing uh, base, then uh, destroying Russia makes uh, sense to uh, prolong the US hegemony. I mean, part of me thinks that the elites in the US are so hooked on to this uh, um, high return, easy um, um, money of uh, like via uh, uh, the financialization of industries. Uh, and also I, I have, I mean, the Russia, the whole uh, Russia, Ukraine, I think to me, it's more like a um, last uh, gasp of like, okay, well, how long can we prolong our uh, hegemony? And what can we uh, do to uh, basically disrupt uh, uh, this uh, whole uh, multipolar uh, uh, world? And at least that's my uh, thinking, but I'd really like to hear uh, your take. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I mean, um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't disagree with that, honestly. Uh, I think that gets into another aspect of this, maybe even a higher aspect. So I agree with that. I mean, <clears throat> I do think that the United States does want to see Russia um, destabilized. However, I do think it is part of this larger strategy against Russia and China, and that China is, and I've believed this since the beginning, so I don't disagree with you, I've believed this from the very beginning of this new Cold War, that China is the more important target. It's not necessarily always going to be the mo the foremost target at any given moment, because I think circumstances are a, a lot more dire for the United States and its allies when it comes to trying to wage any kind of new Cold War, let alone in a hot war with China. I mean, the desperation of trying to equate Taiwan and Ukraine, for example, I think sends this kind of message. It's like attempting to claim that you're defending democracy in Ukraine because of Russia's special military operation, while at the same time trying to stoke separatism in Taiwan, a legally recognized territory of China, right? I, I think it just shows the desperation, and uh, I am in definite agreement that uh, a lot of what, and, and maybe I'll talk a bit about this, a lot of what the United States is doing toward Russia, and actually all of which, always has China in the back. I always say this. I say that anything the United States is doing abroad, China is in the uh, background for in terms of the policy, even if it has nothing to do with China on the surface. So with Ukraine, you see that in the attempts of the United States to bully China, not working, into being some sort of broker with Russia not going to work because China and Russia are incredibly close. And that's the fear of this multipolar world because these two countries are definitely the leaders of it and the rest of the global south views them as such. So when it comes to Ukraine, though, China has good relations with both countries. Uh, arguably, the, uh, its, its relationship with Russia is more strategically important and uh, definitely has... 
uh, more of an impact on its larger overall vision for economic development, political cooperation, cooperation of all kinds. But <clears throat> Ukraine is also a, a, has been a partner of China for since the fall of the Soviet Union, and now um, you know Ukraine is a partner of the Belt and Road Initiative. And so China has every interest in things stabilizing, but it's, I, I think one of the underlying goals in Fahim, I think you're right, is one by decimating Ukraine and also uh, trying to destabilize Russia, not working, but the attempt is to do that to not wage economic warfare, et cetera. The hope is that, all the consequences of this from what's going on with Europe, what's going on Ukraine, all of that will lead to China being weaker. Because if Europe is weak and Europe is not able to make its own decisions, then as we've seen, Europe is more willing to go along with really just counterproductive policies like what the UK did with 5G technology from China, <clears throat> Huawei, etc., completely cutting it off. Policies like that you know, we can expect more of, uh, if that's even possible, we see it with the chip making industry. Now, all of it is to try to weaken China. And yes, I do think that the the underlying motivation here, you saw it in the NATO summit, where NATO called China a malicious actor and labeled it a threat on par with Russia. I mean, uh, this, um, you know, this just, this, this is definitely a big, part of this and so Fahim you know I definitely know disagreement um I just think that yeah I I just didn't talk about it uh, in this podcast uh, just yet so uh, appreciate you adding that here so I'm going to get to Jenny and then we'll probably close up here because I do have to go probably in um uh I have to go in ay, 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 ay. why isn't this letting me let Jenny in what is going on uh Jenny I'm trying to let you in but uh, it's being all right. Let me take you now. Okay, I can take you now. You are in the. Um... Thanks, Danny. Yep. I was wondering what you thought about President Trump's offer to go try and broker a peace deal. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. I, I was. I've. Um, I definitely heard about that, and. You know, it's funny with Donald Trump, you will, um, wow, this is just so buggy right now. Sorry. Um, yeah, this is, this is interesting. Uh, this is what Donald Trump does. And, you know, for me, I was very critical of Donald Trump's foreign policy as president because I thought it was very inconsistent and, you know, I think it's the nature of the business. You you become president, you're more likely to go along with the empire uh, than not. However, I, I mean, I think it's a shrewd uh, political move. I think it's uh, honestly it, just like what Elon Musk said on Twitter, right? There's very little to argue with. Um, but it is something that honestly, when Donald Trump does these things, it, exposes just how invested uh, the uh, entire political class in the United States is in this war because it becomes all about, look how much Trump is in bed with Putin now and, uh, you know, basically equating 
peace with some kind of Russian operation. And uh, this just, I think, is just completely um, unhinged uh, world, you know, uh, approach to things that Donald Trump just says uh, really gives us a good idea of where the entire political establishment is at. And so he is particularly good at exposing their hypocrisies. I actually think, you know, his whole life has been about deal making. And I think why not? If he can go over there and try to make it happen, wouldn't it be worth a shot? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. Trump, people like Donald Trump, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, Don, I think Donald Trump did commit war crimes during his presidency, regardless of how we frame it, like any other president. While all of them, well, are they driving the ship? Or are they just being driven? All that. But um, at the same time, when Donald Trump and people like Dennis Rodman, for example, make these kind of overtures, uh, I, I, I do think it's you know it's worth paying attention to. I think one of the big mistakes that people on the left the genuine left not the democratic party left made with donald trump before he became president after being president i mean things kind of were already out of hand uh uh, you know uh, uh there was all sorts of contradictions to work through and and by that time russia and those kind of things had already had a huge impact on people's understanding of foreign policy but before he became president, as he was talking about defunding NATO and getting out of NATO, maybe, um, as he was talking about detente with Russia, a big missed opportunity there to actually uh, place pressure on the entire electoral situation, on the entire political situation in the United States to address these things seriously rather than allow them to be rendered some kind of like trump plot to work with vladimir putin which is always to me absolutely uh, uh just detached from reality so yeah that we, was their we, go-to position for the last six years yeah we missed an opportunity with that and what we got was just more of the same unfortunately with some you know just like any other president with some you know interesting attempts to uh, try to form a legacy like you know, uh, at the end of his presidency, uh, announcing um, the uh, uh, possible peace deal with Afghanistan, troops out of Syria, and then before that with the DPRK, North Korea. So, in Helsinki was a little interesting, but it was sabotaged from the very beginning. So, there were some interesting, uh, I think, things that I paid attention to, but of course, the assassination of Soleimani and the, you know, sanctions on Venezuela and things like that were were kind of more of the same. But overall, a missed opportunity to actually have people, ordinary people, take up uh, and understand more and talk about uh, real anti-war politics. And I think... Um, have you been following has... the Durham investigation? The Danchenko trial was supposed to start today. So I wondered if you had any thoughts on that as well. No, no, no. That sorry, I, I don't. <laughs> I haven't been following that because I do a lot of my work on this, uh, these issues. But thanks, thanks for calling. I should get, um, I should get going. So appreciate your, um, appreciate your contributions, Jenny. And thank uh, you. Yeah. Have a good night. Um,
All right, everyone. So for some reason, I lost control of the call-in feature on Colin as um, <laughs> I allowed uh, Jenny to speak. That was very interesting. Um, and so hopefully that doesn't happen again. But unfortunately, I should start to wrap up here. So I want to give my final thoughts. Okay. Um, number one. You know, I, uh, what we're seeing here and, and you know, the, the caller before Jenny kind of asked for a general overview of the role, you know, what's the United States' end game here? Why would Europe continue to stay in this? And I think we're seeing with each passing, uh, with each passing day now, it seems, uh, we're seeing this become clearer and clearer. And I think when Russia sends 300,000 soldiers to the front lines, when Russia um, continues operations, perhaps a counterterrorism operation in Ukraine is next. Now that I think it believes, given what happened in the referendums, that the special military operation is basically over 20%, uh, 25% of Ukraine now being Russia's. Um, Maybe a counterterrorism operation, given all that's happening, given the escalations of this war, and and we're going to see the consequences bear out for Ukraine, right? For Ukraine's military, for Ukraine's overall stability, and we're really going to see it in the United States and Europe as recession, as recession starts to kick people's butts here, and it's going it's going to be get pretty bad. Um, and overall, though, I think given that the Communist Party of China is about to have its 20th uh, Party Congress, National Congress, we're going to see the contrast, right? We're going to see Russia rebound from these so-called losses and these offensives that everyone hyped up to the point of, I think, overestimating what they actually accomplished to China's Congress, which is going to be a demonstration of stability and of leadership, and of the capacity to really address problems, uh, f- problems in foreign policy, problems in domestic policy, uh, we're going to see this contrast uh, really shape out, and hopefully it'll be an educational moment for people to understand that this new Cold War is not simply about, or, uh, uh, you know, um, the U.S. trying to assert full spectrum dominance certainly is but it's also about a a world order uh, a a unipolar hegemonic imperialist world order uh, completely and utterly in tatters and lashing out at what it views as legitimate alternatives to its uh, system of unmitigated unchecked exploitation, austerity, and endless war. And we're going to continue to see that play out. And I think that the contradictions are going to get sharper. So I hope all of you will continue to pay attention. And uh, of course, follow me here for more conversation and updates on developments in this new Cold War. Uh, You can do that by following and subscribing to this podcast. You can also support this work over at The Left Lens on YouTube. So be sure to search The Left Lens on YouTube. You can become a member there. You can also just subscribe um, and and attend live streams, etc. I'm going to have, I think I'm going to have two in the next two days, but I'm definitely on tomorrow evening. 
And <clears throat> of course, you can support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. Uh, that's how you support all my work, my writing, my streams, my podcasting. So that's all I got, folks, for this evening. Uh, I appreciate all those who participated. Um, and I will hopefully see you tomorrow on the Left Lens on YouTube. Uh, I should be on about 9 p.m. Eastern time uh, in the evening. All right, everyone. Good night and take care. Bye-bye.